The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Bootleg Football Podcast, AFC East Draft Review Edition. We've got a long show, lots of meat to get through, so I'm not going to waste any of your time. But we do have a little bit of a tradition here, obviously. EJ, how you doing? What are you drinking? How are you feeling about finally getting into this AFC East? Uh, I am good on all three counts. Feeling good. Really excited to talk AFC East because we all have some interest there, but most of these teams had really good drafts, uh, picked a lot of players that were high on our lists. I think a lot of the fits are fascinating, uh, really interesting. The additions to current stables in that division are, are going to be fascinating, and as always, it's going to make fascinating mashups for the interdivision rivalry stuff. But what am I drinking? I got a hold of a bottle of Pendleton 1910, which is their 12-year-aged and it's really nice. Um, I had a little bit before tonight. Couldn't wait. And it uh, starts off a little buttery, uh, a little bit warm. And then at the end, it sort of reminds you that, yep, nope, you're still drinking whiskey. And if you don't like that, you should probably get to something else. Uh, <laughs> but I enjoy that. And it's a nice balance. It doesn't happen in a harsh way. Um, so, yeah, that's what I've got. Um, how are you feeling and what do you have? I feel like I'm in friggin' twilight zone because i'm drinking an ale tonight and you're drinking a whiskey i've <laughs> i've got the red trolley going which is a staple nice. of the uh southern california rotation down here if, if you're from the area you probably know red trolley you probably had a lot of red trolley it's the flagship beer of the carl strauss brewing company it is an irish red ale um just super eminently drinkable I mean, you've had delicious. I mean, it's delicious. It's light. It's only like five point eight, but it, it it is extremely crisp, um, and especially when it's just hotter than hell down here, it goes great on a nice warm summer night. So love red trolley. But uh, let's get into this AFC East. We're gonna start off with. I don't want to say they're our favorite team in the division, but I think we just love their identity more than anybody else in this division because they are a rough and tumble football team that knows what they are. They know what they want to build to be. And I'll say that uh, Brandon Bean has done a phenomenal job building this Bills roster. And I kind of want to list out all the picks that they made this year in the draft because it is very much to the Bills' identity. 
So we got AJ Epinesa all the way down in round two. Remember, they they used the first round pick on Stefan Diggs, so we can count that as their first round pick. I still probably would have used that first rounder on a rookie receiver so that they would be cheaper and you have the contract control, but I get it. They feel like they're in a window. They wanted, um, I guess, more of a proven thing. So I understand why they used the first round pick on Diggs. I don't really hate that at all. I would have done something different, but I don't hate it. But they come back at, at pick 54 in round two. They get A.J. Epinesa. Round three at 86, they get Zach Moss. Round four at pick 128, they get Gabriel Davis, wide receiver at a UCF. Again, trying to get maybe a little bit younger at the position. Round five, they pick up Jake Fromm from Georgia, who's basically just another Matt Barkley, who they already have. <laughs> but round six, they get Tyler Bass, kicker from Georgia Southern, who... I'll be honest, I didn't watch him. Uh, I don't really scout special teams players because I don't really know what to look for, but they got a kicker. Uh, Second round six pick, um, or second six round pick, I should say, number 207 overall, Isaiah Hodgins, wide receiver out of Oregon State. And then round seven, they probably got their best value of the entire class in Dane Jackson, the corner out of Pitt. So EJ kind of looking from a, a holistic or... I guess, full field perspective in terms of their entire class, including Stefan Diggs, what sticks out the most to you? They certainly reloaded the wide receiver room. I think they wanted to do that with a young quarterback. They want to give him as many talented targets as they can. That's a great strategy. Uh, they bring in Zach Moss again to sort of meet that identity. And you talked about Brandon Bean and what he's doing. And I think it's really the sort of synergy between GM and coach, right? Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott seem very much on the same page about what they want this football team to be. And they've sort of held real steady on that. Uh, They've been doing the same thing pretty much since McDermott took over. And this is building a team in their identity, right? In their image that can do the things that they want to do. And it feels like they're really starting to round that out. As you look at the roster, as I dug down through the roster, looking at the new players and the players that existed, it just feels more of a type. There was definitely that time where you were sort of in between tides, old regime, new regime, where there's a little bit of, oh, that guy's a leftover. Oh, that guy's the new bills. Feels much more like they're of a piece now. And Overall, their value is pretty good. Uh, I like a lot of the players they got. I really like a lot of the fits they created. We're going to talk about that. Um, But starting right up top with AJ Epinesa, the Buffalo D-line, right? Listen to this. Listen to who's there now. The DEs, Mario Addison, Epinesa, Jerry Hughes, Trent Murphy, and they got Quentin Jefferson, who I'm very familiar with. He was a Seahawk and highly underrated. There were Mm -hmm. a lot of Seahawks fans that moaned when Q-Jeff, as they call him, left. Uh, because he was underrated. He made more plays than than his name, uh, right? And then your DTs, Vernon Butler, Star Ludulele, Ed Oliver, Harrison Phillips, and Vincent Taylor, if you want to throw him in there. That that eight or nine-man rotation is nuts. It is wave after wave. And they're all tough. Again, they're all of a type, and they can all bring pressure. You can rotate them. You can mix them and match them. You got some very strong guys in the middle. You've got guys like Oliver who can penetrate. Harrison Phillips is the same way. Uh, you've got, you know, maybe not sort of pure blowing speed off the edge. Jerry Hughes used to be that. I don't think he is anymore, but you've got these big, tough guys on the edge that are definitely going to set the edge. Nothing's going to be easy against Buffalo in the trenches, and that's the way they want it. That feels very much in McDermott's image. So 
that D line is is I, I think when Epinesa went off the board, we looked at each other and said, Bill, like yep. born Bill. He's that's <laughs> Came just out a of Bill. The womb, a Buffalo Bill. Yeah, is it just a really, really solid fit? And then, you know, in the second round they turn around and they grab Zach Moss. And he's going to back up Singletary. Singletary did. Uh, I liked Devin Singletary coming out last year. Had a very good rookie season. Definitely showed he's got some juice. We'll, we'll go into this year being the lead guy. Um, but Moss brings a little more ground and pound and a really versatile game. And all of a sudden you look at that stable and you sort of, again, want to get a guy that's got some of the things that the guy you have doesn't have. And either one of those guys can be productive, but in slightly different ways. And again, they can rotate them in and out of the game, depending on the situation and expect really solid production from both of them. I will say, uh, A, I love the Zach Moss pick. Um, I kind of want to jump a little bit to the decision they made at receiver. Uh, well, they took both Gabriel Davis and they took Isaiah Hodgins. I know we were, we were kind of talking off air a little bit how you, you said you think that Hodgins could honestly take significant snaps away from Davis, Davis in terms of how you graded them. You, you felt like Hodgins, even though they got him 100 picks later, is just as good, if not better, of a player than Davis. To me, I would almost kind of say, like, if you flipped where they were picked, would you be okay with it? I, I wouldn't have any issue with it because I would probably say the same thing about Davis, man. What a great value down in round six to get Gabe Davis. Um, Davis is a little bit more flashy down the outside, uh, a little bit more. He made his money at UCF. Uh, well, if he made any money at UCF, uh, he made his catches <laughs> at UCF wink, uh, wink, down the nudge, sideline. Nudge. <laughs> yeah, he made his catches down the sideline for the most part. Um, goes, uh, slants sluggos that's kind of that's his route that's where he really shone against smaller defensive backs especially both these guys are big you know 6'3 and 6'4 both well over 200 pounds Hodgins was a little bit more I felt like effective all over the field he's also a down the field receiver um slightly slower than Davis but just a tick and I felt like made more catches across the middle um in the short zone uh, has great hands, uh, knows for the end zone. So it feels like, you know, either one of these guys, I don't want to call them interchangeable because they're not the same, but uh, really just adds to that wide receiver room. They needed some new targets. Obviously, Diggs is the big get, and we obviously count him in this draft. He cost them the first round pick, but look, you're getting Stephon Diggs. Um, his contract is not terrible. It's not a rookie contract, but for an established star performing receiver, he he's not on a crazy pay scale. Um, yeah, it's like 15 million or something like that, which yeah, and is not the bad. cost control doesn't ramp up. It's not one of those crazy backloaded contracts that's really going to kill the Bills. So I can see why they made the move. Now the top three are going to be Diggs, Brown, and Beasley in that order, and all three of those guys are returning and they're productive in this offense. But both of these guys could pick up some catches um, as rookies, as the third or fourth receiver, some big catches, few big catches down the sideline. I would expect either for touchdowns or first downs. Um, and suddenly your wide receiver core looks a lot more balanced. If you look at it with sort of just Brown and Beasley and without Diggs and or Davis and Hodgins, uh, you, you start to understand that Brandon Bean was looking at that, looking at his young quarterback and going, ah, we have to do a little bit better for him, right? We have to fill that room out. And boy, did they. They got Diggs, an established option, who is their instant number one. 
And then two guys that, you know, if either one of them works out, look, you got one in the fourth and one in the sixth. Um, that's a win from a draft standpoint. So I like what they did with the wide receiver room, and I bet Allen likes it a whole lot. Yeah, the thing that I, I felt they really needed the most was big bodies that could make contested catches because they had a very, uh, other than I, uh, other than Duke last year, they had a very small receiving core that wasn't great at contested catches. And so I think now, because of the versatility of the size of Davis and Hodgins, and especially Hodgins' skill set, I think as the field shrinks and you get closer to the red zone, and obviously in the red zone, now you can swap out Brown and Beasley, put in Davis and Hodgins. That's where I think they're going to get most of their snaps, is down probably inside the 30-yard line when fields get a little bit more compressed and size becomes a little bit more valuable of a trait. Like, I think you can stack Davis and Hodgins together uh, and just kind of say, okay, go up and get it. Diggs is never going to leave the field. But but those two young guys with their size, I think, can make a huge impact just for the red zone offense alone, which um, for, for Allen's development specifically, I think is going to be huge for him. So I, I think those two picks were very prudent for that reason. I... I, I still probably would have taken a hard look at trying to make a move for like a Denzel Mims when he slipped and, and you know, some of the other bigger name guys. But uh, again, when you look at their overall haul with Epinesa and Moss, like it, it makes sense. Uh, I, I would have built it a slightly different way, but I don't think that their way was like bad at all. Like I, if anything, it's just kind of different philosophies, but I, I'm very intrigued to see how it works out. I think they got better as a team, um, and hopefully their their fifth round pick, Jake Fromm, just never has to see the field because I think that would be a good thing for them. Not because I don't like Fromm, but just because I want Allen to stay healthy. Uh, I'm I'm a, I'm a big fan of his, and just kind of seeing how far he's come. Uh, I I don't necessarily think that he'll beat out Matt Barkley, um, but if neither him or Barkley ever see the field, I consider that a win for Buffalo. Yeah, I bet Fromm does beat out Barkley. Barkley's star has been fading for quite a few years. Uh, Fromm is very efficient. I mean, Fromm is what he is. The reason he fell to the fifth round is when people really dug into his tape. They saw the flash plays. They saw the great throws. They saw the sort of pinpoint accuracy, but they also saw a little bit the inconsistency. And um, for the most part, pushing it down the field is not his strength. So the one thing that Buffalo is going to have to be mindful of especially if they play you know in a northern stadium outdoors is that you know as you get later into the season if Fromm does have to come in to replace Josh Allen you are going to have to change the offense you can't significantly ask, you can't ask Fromm to do the same things that Allen does it's yeah. just not going to work but I, I don't know I think Fromm has a really solid chance to be QB2 in a hurry all he has to be is Barkley and Davis Webb like that's not uh, what I would call a high bar in terms of quarterbacking to overcome. And I think Fromm is a smart and efficient quarterback. I think he can be very accurate. And I think with all these targets, he could come in and run a version of the offense that would still be effective and keep the bills moving. Um, but I don't want to see Jake Fromm, you know, in uh, early December trying to throw passes in a snowstorm in Orchard Park deep down the field. I, I just don't it, think if, that's going to be his best life. Not at all. So I yeah. think he's a value. And, you know, if, again, people were talking about Jake Fromm as, you know, early in the process as possible late first-round quarterback, then it was the second round, then it was, hey, he's probably going to go in the third. That's where his value is. 
by the time we get to the draft, he goes all the way to the fifth. That's a value pick, right? You get a guy that's really experienced in the SEC. Um, and it, I think, honestly, is better than your current two backups. And again, you get some cost control. Fifth rounder, he's not going to make any money. If he turns out to be good and be able to move the offense in the preseason, hey, it's that's great. That's a great value pick by Bean. Now, if they jumped and said, we need him and pulled the trigger in the third, ah, I don't like that so much. You get him in the fifth and he's better than the guys you got on the bench, hit it. I mean, I, I guess if you look at it from the standpoint, the the Howie Roseman standpoint, that's <laughs> been kind of used to justify the Jalen Hurts pick, who we'll get to uh, eventually, um, of your, you're only as good as your worst quarterback. If they feel like they can win games with him if the worst happens to Josh Allen, and they're right about that, then it justifies the pick. I think... Whether or not they win games with him heavily depends on where they play and what time of year it is, which kind of makes me a little bit antsy about the pick to begin with, but who knows, you know. <laughs> pretty pretty you solid talent in the fifth round. It's, yeah. Uh, you know, again, in the third, I would quibble. I would say, look, you could have had X, you could have had Y. Um, in the fifth, to get a guy that is a capable quarterback and can move an offense, uh, again, a changed offense, not the same offense that your current starter runs um, without some modification. But um, value-wise, I'm not going to throw any kind of peanuts at Brandon Bean for picking up what I think is a, is a decent value in the fifth. If anything, I'd throw him a ticker tape parade for the value he got for Dane Jackson in the seventh because there is yes. no universe in which I thought he was going to be there that late. Uh, I don't think he should have. I think people got maybe swayed a little bit by his stature. He is not the stoutest guy. Um, we talked to him. He was actually the first guy that we ever talked to at the Senior Bowl on That's true. Tuesday, media yeah. day. He was the first interview. We, I, I saw him over the corner, and a lot of the bigger guys were, were busy or had big lines, and we were just kind of warming up. You were trying to shoot some film, and I said, let's go let's go get him. And you're like, who's that? I was like, Dane Jackson, cornerback, Pittsburgh. Just trust me. Wait till he gets on the field. Okay, okay. So we went over, we interviewed him. Very soft-spoken guy, very thoughtful. Um, I asked him about his game versus Virginia, which was an all-out war. If you want to go back and watch just a, one of the most physical tapes from CFB last year, it was the entire Virginia team against the entire Pittsburgh team. Um, everybody, just huge hits in that game. But Jackson is a dog. He played outside. He is tough. He backs down from nobody. So I think the the physical stature might get overrated. If you look at his game, very, very skilled corner. Um, you sent me a clip uh, Wednesday the next day after practice, and your only comment was, brew, <laughs> because he was, he was breaking on a nice little comeback cut route and knocking the ball away, just classic textbook kind of stuff. He does that all the time. And if he isn't playing solid minutes in Buffalo by midseason, I'd be really surprised. Really, the only player in front of him that he has to push is EJ Gaines, who's back for his second stint in Buffalo. Played solidly his first time around there. And look, he's an experienced veteran, and Nickel is a tough uh, position to pick up in the pros. There's a lot more detail and nuance to it than there is at the college level, and you are always got a two-way break for the receiver. Um, but Dane is very smart. Uh, studies hard, uh, has great physical skills. He's very quick. He's not huge, uh, knows how to use his hands, gets his head around, very, very aggressive for his size. I think he's going to fit right in, and he's going to be able to be in that cornerback room and you know look around at some of the other players who are well-established and learn some really good habits from them. I think he's in a great spot. If he's not the fourth corner, 
um, on the field for the Bills by midseason and possibly even the third or, or the starter in nickel, which is the new base. Oh, he's going to um, start. <laughs> I would be I would be really surprised. Yeah. Uh, two, two things, two observations from the Senior Bowl, which was my first exposure to him. I remember I was talking to you the day before we talked to Dane over a plate of ribs and I was like okay who's your guy here and, yeah. and you who are you, you excited were, about who does you were selling me on Dane and yeah. when we when we first talked to him what was hilarious to me and I don't know if this was intentional but they had him standing right next to Alex Taylor who is a mammoth human being he's like six eight and so he had one of the smallest players at the Senior Bowl standing next to, I think, the largest player at the Senior Bowl. And it was freaking hilarious. They look like two different species. <laughs> but when you when you get on the field, Dane's a better football player than Alex Taylor is. I know oh, they play far. different positions, but like yeah, Dane knows close. what the hell he's doing. And and yeah. we were watching him from the bleachers uh in the in I think it was the team portion. The 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 team like, no, it wasn't seven on seven, I think it was full team portion. And the the thing that makes him really good is not just the physicality and the technique and everything like that, but it's the intelligence. We were watching him, and we actually asked him after that practice, too, like, hey, we saw you do this. What were you thinking? And he was reading the splits of receivers and then shifting his leverage in his alignment literally two seconds before the ball was snapped because he knew what route was coming. And so he was showing one leverage and then shifting his alignment right before the snap and just completely shutting down these routes. Uh, Particularly, he saw a reduced split from a receiver, knew they were going to be running a fade out of it, shifted the outside leverage and just beat the dude up along the boundary. And then he saw a motion into a stack, immediately calling out screen, widened himself so that he could get a good angle and beat the block and take it down for a tackle for loss. I mean, he is so friggin' smart. And when you combine that with with technique and toughness, you know, he's a Buffalo Bill. That, that, that's what they want. They want toughness and they want intelligence and everything else is just a bonus to them. And so I think he's going to fit right in. He's going to make the roster. And I'm, I agree with you. I think he's going to start. Well, let's go to the team that the Buffalo Bills are building to take down. And this is this is the big kid on the block and has been for the last, I don't know, 20 years, right? <laughs> New England has literally just mashed that division forever, it feels like. And we're at a not completely different place. Um, a lot of people predicted that both the head coach and the quarterback would leave at the same time. The quarterback has moved his way on down to Tampa Bay. Uh, so for it's going to see, seem very strange to see anybody starting uh, behind center besides Tom Brady. It sounds like it's going to be Jarrett Stidham. They they are set on that. Belichick's still there, and he really sort of gets to prove his theory now that, hey, it's not the quarterback, it's everything else, it's team. And uh, Belichick is the uh, coach and GM, de facto GM for New England. So does things his own way. I would say he's one of the – probably three most wild card GMs in the NFL in terms of who he's going to pick as a draft analyst. It's always like, Oh boy, you know, the first person picked that I've never heard of is probably going to be a third round safety for new England. Um, (laughs) Didn't happen this year, but that happens probably every other year. So it's not surprising, but um, again, Belichick understands his system as well as anybody. His coaches understand what they need. They draft for that. They don't really care what else anybody does. So it's going to be fascinating as it always is to see the Patriots sort of um, reload and morph into something else. They've been a, you know, five wide passing team with small receivers. They've been a 
two tight end powerhouse. They've been a power running team when they've needed to be. Uh, they are as uh, sort of amorphous and changeable as any team in the NFL. And I think he'll do it again this year. But this year, if we're looking at the picks, round two, pick 37, Kyle Duggar, the safety from Lenore Ryan. Uh, again, in round two, they picked at 60, Josh Uche, the outside linebacker from Michigan. Round three, they go back to a familiar stomping ground in Alabama. They get Anthony Jennings, another outside linebacker. Then they double up on tight ends, both again in round three. So three picks in round three, 87, 91, and 101. The two tight ends they end up grabbing are Devin Asiasi from UCLA and Dalton Keene from Virginia Tech. Then they drop down. They don't have a fourth round pick in the fifth. Uh, they pick up Justin Rohrwasser, the place kicker for Marshall. Round six, again, they have three picks. Um, they get a guard from Michigan, Michael Onwenu, uh, on Justin Heron, the offensive tackle from Wake Forest, and then Cash Melawia, the linebacker from Wyoming. We're going to talk about him. And then they round it out in round seven with Dustin Woodward, the center from Memphis. So as you look at all those guys and knowing what we know about New England and what we don't know about New England or what could change, what sticks out to you about the 2020 Patriots draft? They really, really, really love role players in New England. You know, they, they, they have, <laughs> yes, they do. They have a role for you in mind, and you will play that role. And if you can do more on top of that, that's great. You, you better be able to play special teams. Like That's a, a flatline requirement. That doesn't count as doing more. That just counts as doing your job. But they, they will draft you if you have a specific role to play and if you're really, really good at it. You know, if... If you can pass rush really well, guess what? You have a job on third down. You probably don't have one on first down, but you have a third down job. They'll they'll rotate you in and out. Um, you know, if you're a hybrid safety linebacker that can kind of play in the box and can you know play some man coverage on tight ends and running backs, you have a role there. Even if you can't play deep uh, as well, it's fine. You have a role. Uh, if you are an outside linebacker that can play the run really well, but you're not really athletic enough to be a great pass rusher. Well, guess what? You're going to rotate with the guy who is a great pass rusher. If you're a wide tight end, you've got a role. If you're a move tight end, you've got a role. They don't have a whole lot of guys that are masters of everything. You know, you're not going to find a, a Julio Jones on this kind of team. You're not going to find a Jamal Adams on this kind of team where, where no matter what, they're going to be great at it. They, hyper focus on individual skill sets and they say okay can we use this skill set for this one thing and if the answer is yes they'll draft you so when i look at duggar and uche duggar is like like you were kind of mentioning multiple times throughout the pre-draft process he's going to be like their kind of patrick chung you know the box safety that can handle limited coverage assignments in terms of man ability on tight ends and running backs He's not going to be one of those nickel safeties that you can put on slot receivers and expect them to be really, really good. You know, he'll play the run. He's a downhill kind of guy. Is he super instinctive as a deep safety? No, but if he can be Patrick Chung, he has a role. You know, you look at Josh Uche, who I think is a just, he's a firestorm off the edge in terms of explosiveness. Uh, Jedrick Wills, who was a top 10 pick to the Browns, said that Uche was the best edge rusher that he played against all year. And that's saying something because he went against a lot of really good edge rushers. So, I mean, he's an exceptional athlete. He can cover a little bit, but he's not exactly the best run defender. Enter Anthony Jennings, who's not as good of a pass rusher, but is a better run defender. Uh, and so I, I think when I look at those first three defensive picks, they're all role players 
but they are very good in those roles, which gives me confidence that they're going to be Patriots for a very long time. Yeah, I want to see how fast Duggar adapts mentally because Belichick famously said you can't play with dumb safeties, and I am not calling Kyle Duggar dumb. Let's get that out of the way first. What I'm saying is going from Lenore Ryan, not a huge school, to probably one of the defensive masterminds of ever Ever. in the NFL, (laughs) right? He's going to have some learning to do. He's going to have a lot of learning to do. He's got a lot more to do, and he's got a lot more to process on his plate. And the quicker he can do that, the more successful he's going to be. Because physically, look, he's a marvel. He is stacked. He's incredibly strong. He's very fast. When he moves, he's got click and close for a guy his size. Um, He feels like a more athletic Patrick Chung. But what Patrick Chung does is not make mistakes in New England's defense, mm-hmm. right? He is incredibly solid. He is always where he's supposed to be. That's why he, when he left, he came back, and Belichick was happy to have him for the second stint because he knew that he knew where Patrick Chung could be every play, right? And he could count on that, and he loves that. So if Duggar can match that part of Chung's game and bring the added athleticism, like you said, he'll be a Patriot for a very long time. Uche feels a little strange to me. Um, not because I don't think that he fits, but physically he doesn't match that sort of bigger, heavier edge that New England has taken in the past. But what he does fit perfectly is that need for sort of versatility. You talked about single role players, but they do love to have players that they can do two things with, right? You can rush off the edge with speed, which Uche is, like you said, a blur. He's very quick off the edge. He's got probably as much juice as just about any edge rusher in this class in terms of pure speed. Mm -hmm. But he can also get down the field. He can turn that speed around and go backwards, which a lot of guys that play that position can't. And we saw him in coverage on, was it? uh, It was KJ Hamler. Yeah, it was was Hamler. I was going to say Rager, (laughs) but it was, yeah. Yeah. It was KJ Hamler. He's like 35 yards down the field covering KJ Hamler, who runs a 4-3. Like that is, that feels like something that Belichick saw classically he'll take one play and say look at this and hide it away he saw that play from uche for sure and went aha i got a thing we're gonna do with you right and so he fits that versatility just perfectly and then jennings look jennings is like comfort food for bill belichick right he and nick saban are famously very good friends loves to go back to the alabama well when he can and jennings feels like that more classic traditional new england edge backer pick that's heavier like you said better against the run and he knows everything about him coming because he's coming from his buddy nick saban so um not surprised to see anthony jennings uh end up in new england it's been a while since we saw the uh patriots take two tight ends in a draft last time they did that was 2010 both of those guys went on to make a pretty solid impact on the field i'd say Um, But the thing to remember about those two tight ends, famously uh, Gronkowski and Hernandez, was that nobody thought they were a great pick at the time. Everybody looked at them and they were like, well, Gronkowski was injured and Hernandez is kind of inconsistent at Florida. Like, what are they going to do with those guys? And again, they changed their offense completely, really changed the offense of the NFL, come out in a two tight end formation pretty solidly all the time. And both of those guys start racking up serious production early in their in their careers. 
these guys are not those guys. But then again, we didn't think those guys were those guys at the time. <laughs> That's a fair point. So, yeah, Devin Asiasi from UCLA looks like a Y tight end, but he plays like a move tight end. He's the flash guy. He's the pick up extra yards, um, make big chunks uh, out in Chip Kelly's offense at UCLA. Uh, looks like a blocker but really isn't they kind of had to hide his blocking at ucla and just hope that they could get big chunk plays out of him in the passing game so he's more the the hernandez guy here who's gonna you know make some flashy plays over the middle and sort of tight end split out seam routes that's that's asiasi's role dalton keen a little bit more the classic blocker type um heavier uh you know and again can they play him in a stack can they play him at the same time they can and i bet they will um, obviously there's a hole for the first time in a long time at the tight end position in new England. And again, these guys have their roles and they're going to rotate them in. They might play them together, but they're going to rotate them in when they need the thing that they do the best with, with these tight ends. I, I understand the role that they're going to play and in a vacuum, I don't necessarily dislike the picks, but I will say the, the next six tight ends that were taken after them were all guys that I thought would have gone specifically to the Patriots ahead of the two tight ends that they took. These are the six names, Adam Troutman, Harrison Bryant, Albert O, Colby Parkinson, Bryson Hopkins, and a show favorite, Charlie Warner, who ended up going in the sixth round of the 49ers, uh, who's an excellent tight end in his own right, uh, especially as a blocker. All six of those guys Again, if it was me, I would have taken any of those six over the two that they took. Value-wise, in a vacuum, were they bad picks? No, not necessarily, but I do think in terms of the other guys that were on the board, I my priorities personally would have been elsewhere. Yeah, I don't disagree. I, I Every name you read off, I had rated above these two guys. But we're back to Bill Belichick being the de facto GM, and he's just like John Schneider. Yeah. And when John Schneider made his first round pick out of a linebacker at Texas Tech, right? <laughs> Jordan Brooks, everybody went, what? And John Schneider said, I don't care what you think. And Belichick was the same way, I guarantee, about these two tight ends. There is something or some things about their games that he looked at and said, they're ours. They're the ones. Go get them. He doesn't care that he picked him in the third and that he probably could have got, frankly, both of them in the fifth. Probably. He doesn't care. Yeah. Not at all. Not one bit. He hasn't lost, I guarantee, one wink of sleep over this at all. He goes, these are my guys because they do this and this, and I saw him do this against this guy. Like, Belichick is notoriously detailed in scouting and film study, and he knows what he got out of these guys. Now, if they can continue to do that or project the way that he thinks in New England is a crapshoot, it always is in in every team, if you hit 30 or 40% out of your draft picks, you're doing great. So if one of these guys turns out to be a, a decent, solid starter in New England for the next you know, three to five years in the third round, that's great. He got solid value. Um, you know, Am I going to argue that all of the guys you mentioned I like better than both of these guys? No, they were both lower rated on my board than all of those guys. And specifically a guy like Albert O, uh, who can do the size speed thing down the middle and really be a red zone threat, I thought would be a very sort of tasty pick for New England. But uh, look, 
Bill Belichick's Bill Belichick for a reason, and I'm me. So I'm not going <laughs> to question him. I'm going to say I would have done it differently, just like you did. I'm not going to say he did it poorly because we'll know in two or three years whether you know we were more right about those guys or he was more right about these guys. Um, but he's earned the benefit of the doubt. For yeah, sure. odds are he's going to be more right than we are. Generally, but, yes. <laughs> but our opinions, will at least note them on the off chance we get it right. We can look at it in three years and say, hey, look, we made one decision better than Bill Belichick three years ago. I was going to say, it's the ago. one thing we've got on Bill Belichick. He's got 25 years, and this is the one thing. Nah, we'll see. What did you think of their their kind of three-pack of day three offensive linemen of Michael Onwenu, who is, uh, at least I think I pronounced that correctly, Onwenu, from Michigan, who is absolutely massive. He's 6'3", 345, with like 34 and a half inch arms. Just an absolutely huge human being. Uh, Justin Heron from Wake Forest and Dustin Woodard from Memphis. What was your initial reaction to them kind of taking a shotgun approach to the offensive line, just kind of getting as many guys as they could? Uh, To me, this really picks... uh or this really matches and a Pat's pattern, you know, three of the last four picks are O-line picks. And that pattern is unheralded guys that the coaching staff, again, thinks they can mold into competent players. And that's not a lottery that they've lost a whole lot. They've done it fairly often over the years. Ted Larson was a round six player. Marcus Cannon, a round five player. Trey Jackson and Shaq Mason were out of round four in the same year. Ted Karras, a year or two later, round six. So the likelihood that one of those guys at least becomes a starter is better than average. And I wouldn't doubt if two of them do because the Patriots have shown this ability to say, again, these guys have certain traits in our system. Nobody else values them. And we will call them basically out of the bottom rounds of the draft. We will plug them in and they will play very, very competently for us. So I was not surprised I certainly wouldn't have been able to pick them out of a bunch and say, these are the Patriots guys based on a profile. I think that's a little bit easier to do. Not easy, but easier to do with John Schneider than it is with Belichick because his thing so much isn't necessarily size or an arm length threshold or anything else. It's these guys do the thing we need at the spot we project them to. Um, are they all going to make it? I doubt that. Draft averages say they aren't. Uh, would one or two of them making it surprise me? Not in the slightest. All of their successful day three linemen and all of their success as a team, all the great offensive lines they've had, if anything, I, I think it just kind of strengthens the case that Dante Skarnecchia should be in the ring of honor the second he decides to retire again oh, because, my so, God. So easily. <laughs> So easily. <laughs> that guy the has best turned, offensive line coach ever. Yeah, that guy has turned chicken soup out of chicken feathers for <laughs> so long that it's amazing. And the fact that they've had so much success. Everybody says, look, you build from the inside out. You can't do anything without an offensive line. You gotta protect the best asset on the team, which is, you know, Tom Brady for many years in New England. And they've done it with again fourth fifth sixth round players have they taken tackles in the first and second round they sure have and have they been good they sure have so that doesn't really sort of that's not a counter argument right um a lot of teams only get their top offensive line picks right and and the guys from you know day three usually don't contribute the patriots have done it up and down the board uh it's it is i can't 
at all disagree with you. This Garnacchia is one of the best football coaches we've seen probably in our lifetime. A little less heralded than some others, but no less effective. I think the reverence that other coaches within the game have for him is sort of vote enough for minimum ring of honor. If not, I could see him going into the Hall of Fame eventually. I know that's unlikely to happen uh, just because of the voting structure. If there's a senior committee, like if there's ever, ever an assistant coach, a lifelong assistant coach that would go in the Hall of Fame, it is Dante Skarniecki because everybody in the league knows how unbelievably good he is. So if there's one, if there's one in the history of the sport that would make it, it's him. Yeah. Um, but there is one more guy we want to talk about with this Patriots class. I kind of skipped over him on purpose because I wanted to, to highlight him specifically. Uh, that was round six, pick 204, Cash Maluia. 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 I know. I always screw that up. That's right. He was the other Wyoming linebacker. And I will say, when, when you watch um, Logan Wilson, who went early third round, I think, to Cincinnati, um, who I think for both of us was a top three linebacker in this class, inarguably. When you were watching him, um, every once in a while, a huge splash play would be made where this dude is just click close, huge tackle for loss, blowing up screens, uh, you know, blowing up the run. And you're like, oh, okay, I guess they just highlighted the wrong guy before the play. And it's like, oh, no, that was the other one. That was Cash Maluia. They didn't make a mistake. Like, they just have two really good linebackers in Wyoming. Uh, and, and to see him go... In round six, again, when we think about this role player mentality in New England, to me, I'm not saying he's Jamie Collins, but I think he can play that kind of role for them as just a really athletic, instinctive inside linebacker who flies to the ball. And when the table is set for him by everybody around him, he can clean it up. Yeah, I like Malawiya. He flashed a few times. I made the same kind of notes watching Logan Wilson that you did. Hey, was that him? No, it was the other guy. Okay. Well, there's something there. And to me, it really reminded me of Brock Coyle coming out of Montana the year Jordan Tripp was coming out 2014. Everybody was watching Jordan Tripp. Jordan Tripp was super athletic, um, had a lot of eyes on him. And I would be watching Jordan Tripp tape and they, uh, a lot of times being, um, you know, Montana tape wasn't highlighted in the same way that like the SEC tape was the player wasn't surrounded by a little yellow circle before the play started, that kind of thing. And I'd say, oh, and I'd look and I'd say, oh, it's not his number. Oh, that's Coyle. Right. And Coyle ends up going undrafted, signing with the Seahawks, carving out himself, uh, you know, a really fine career, ended up um, playing for the 49ers for the last several seasons, largely on special teams and as a backup, but like a very solid linebacker retired last year due to injury. But the very same thing, very high profile Jordan Tripp versus, you know, Logan Wilson. But hey, there's this other guy, Malawiya flash plays opportunistic around the ball, decent hands. Very tough kid. Comes from Compton, California. Um, Really very fast, like you said, speed increase, and already has special teams experience. That is a great pick for down in the sixth round, right? Get a guy that's fast, has special teams experience, is tough, is versatile, can play a little bit of the pass, definitely plays the run in the short zone out to the sides very, very well. Um, physical, which you always have to be if you're going to be a Patriot, like that guy's making the roster. Like he's from Compton. Yep. How the hell did he end up at Wyoming? Uh, you know, I I don't know his recruiting story, but, uh, no, he's from Compton, California. So Oregon is all over 
the LA yeah, Oregon schools. and I mean, quite frankly, <laughs> like USC, right? USC, yeah. strong traditional linebackers, like literally next door to Compton. And he ends up playing at Wyoming. I don't know if he wasn't highly recruited. Don't know if he was injured. Don't know. Don't know what the story was in terms of why he ended up at Wyoming or if he just wasn't very big and got bigger when he got there. Very solidly built guy. But look, Cash Malawi is he's going to make the Patriots roster. I would be stunned. I would actually be fairly stunned if he was on the practice squad. Like, I think he's I don't making think the they 53. would risk that. Well, I think they would. He's a six round pick and he's the second linebacker out of Wyoming. Like not that many guys are going to, yeah. Cause again, if you're going to pick him off the practice squad, you got to give him a starter 53. I think that would be a safe bet. I'm not saying it wouldn't be a good roster decision. I just, I, he feels all the world to me like a Patriot. So, um, I'd be really surprised if he wasn't on the starting 53 because he's versatile. He's tough. He's fast. Uh, he plays special teams already, which, like you said, isn't part of your extra job at the Patriots. It's part of your core job. Uh, yeah, it just feels like a perfect Patriots pick for me. But Yeah, overall, the class was it was a very Patriots-esque class, and and I, I really, really like what they did. Yeah, not dissimilar from the Bills, right? It feels very much like their identity. It's not the same identity as the Bills are building, but again, they did things their way, lined up the players that fit their system. Um, and again, New England has done that traditionally as well as anybody in the NFL. Yeah. I, I will say, though, that when I look at the Patriots class and I, I try to compare it to their arch rivals, the Jets class, man, uh, not only do I think the Jets had maybe the best draft in this whole division, they had one of the best drafts in the entire league. Uh, I mean, they, from top to bottom, just listen to these names. It's absolutely ridiculous. So round one, Mekhi Becton. Round two, Denzel Mims. Round three, Ashton Davis. Another round three, Jabari Zuniga. And then they got a three pair of fourth rounders in LaMichael Pirine, James Morgan, and Cam Clark. And then round five, Bryce Hall. I mean, come on. And yeah. then you round it off with <laughs> with uh, Braden Mann, arguably the best punter in the country in round six out of punter U, Texas A&M. Uh, there's no bad picks in this whole class. Like, not, e- not even any questionable picks, in my opinion. Like, it's it's absurd how good this class is. Yeah, they went. Joe Douglas did a great job with this class, and I, I don't know that Jets fans are are really used to their class being great, solid, and of good value top to bottom. Um, certainly hasn't been the case uh, prior to Joe Jug- Joe Douglas being there. So they're getting used to it now, though. And you know, starts off at the top with Becton, who is massive. Um, you did a bunch of film work on him. He's not just massive, though, right? Um, and we won't even talk about his dad, who's also massive from the draft coverage, right? Yeah. Talk about a bloodline. My God. Yeah, we know where he comes from, but he's not just, he doesn't just win with size. Look, he is destructive physically. He is a big, big dude, biggest tackle in this class. And he's a monster that way alone, but he doesn't win with that alone. He has good technique. He has good mobility. Even at that size, he is, I I don't think they thought they were going to get him. I think they're incredibly happy that they did because they got a really good one. He could end up playing for a long time on the edge for the Jets. I, I thought there was a legitimate chance he would have gone at four to the Giants and I wouldn't have hated it. Nope. So to get him at 11, you know, a potential top five kind of guy to get him at 11, is pretty insane. And, and remember, I, I, when I did the full Jets review on my on my YouTube channel, I, I kind of dug a little bit more into it. But 
people kind of talk about him being a raw pass protector. He's not raw. Like this I isn't. I don't think so. <laughs> this isn't Greg Robinson. Like no, he's, no, no, no. He's he was average in his technique at Louisville. He wasn't bad, but. This whole offseason, he's been working with Duke Mannyweather, who is one of the, if not the best, I guess you can call him a private offensive line coach. I right. mean, he, he's the guy that works with Lane Johnson and, and Mitchell Schwartz and Trent Brown every Guru offseason. is appropriate Guru. for Mannyweather. Yeah, I mean, he is a phenomenal coach who has a, a clientele that is just littered with pro bowlers and all pros. And so if Becton is his latest pupil... Um, when you combine that with his natural talent and the kid's just a really hard worker in general, like I, I think he's going to be a special, like a really, really special player. He's probably be the best offensive lineman they've had since when they had a uh, Mangold and, and brick in their primes. I think they got in the same first round class. If I remember correctly, I think they got Mangold into Brickshaw in the same year in the same first round, but I'll, I'll have to double check that, but he'll be the best offensive lineman they've had since that so i guess a decade or at least damn close to it um he's he's exactly what sam Darnold needs and man hats off to them for landing him at 11 not having to give up any extra assets and and speaking of things that sam Darnold needs by the way denzel mims pick 59 um can you explain that one to me because i don't i don't know that i can especially (laughs) after the senior bowl before the senior bowl that felt about right you know, middle of the second round, I think was, uh, you know, that was probably the top where people Mim, where people thought Mims was going to go prior to the Senior Bowl. Shows up at the Senior Bowl, obviously has great size. They're already familiar with his tape. Tenacious blocker, one of my favorite things about Denzel Mims. Knew he had really good speed, and he just massacres people with routes. Routes, yeah. size, speed, physicality, blocking. All of a sudden, people come away from the Senior Bowl and they go, uh, we might have been around light on this guy. Like, like, where's the weakness? Show me the weakness, right? Tell me if he has slow feet or bad hands or or just doesn't block or nope, nope, he's all those things. He's got really good hands. He's got great size. He's really fast. Um, he just destroyed the defensive backcourt at the Senior Bowl. And so all and there of was sudden, a lot of good DBs there, too. Yep. And yeah. all of a sudden first round talk middle first round oh he's not gonna last past 15 oh he's not gonna last past 25 right and you know it cooled a little bit i'm not exactly sure why Uh, you look at the receivers that went ahead of him for the most part and you go okay look it it was a historic wide receiver class and i can see why they went uh they tended to go a little bit later like cd lamb who we'll talk about a little bit later ended up going 17 like he was again a potential top 10 pick um, so not different than Becton in, in the same way, but I don't really know why he ends up in the second round, but I know the jets are jumping for joy because Robbie Anderson, who is their large speed target, um, ran a lot of their deep middle stuff is gone. Um, he's ended up in Carolina and Mims is going to slide right into the majority of taking over his targets right away. Uh, I believe that right now. And I think Sam Darnold is probably as Happy as a clam that the first two picks were a big blindside protector and another big, fast wide receiver. Uh, I'm sure he wasn't happy when Anderson left town. They had a relationship in terms of being on the field and making a connection. 
Uh, if he can make that kind of connection with Mims very quickly, I don't think they're going to miss a beat. Demzel Mims, I think, is probably even a little bit more talented than Robbie Anderson. So, if anything, you know, yes, there's a there's a rookie bump for him to get up to speed, but overall, I think it's probably an upgrade. Yeah, I mean, having a receiving core of Mims, Jamison Crowder, and Brashad Perriman, is it like ideal? Maybe not, but it's better than they had last year. Yeah. I think <laughs> it's know? an improvement. And I think yeah. Mims, if Mims h- hits the ceiling that I think you and I think he has, then that's looking like a pretty damn good receiving trio. Uh, I do want to kind of level expectations here because, again, he's going to be a rookie wide receiver on an average-ish football team uh, without an actual offseason. So do I think he's going to come out the gate and be ultra productive? Probably not. Like, this is some of the most difficult circumstances that rookies have had to deal with in quite some time. Uh, He's not going to be in the same kind of shape that most rookies will be in because you can't train right now. He's not going to have the same grasp on the playbook because there's no real offseason. Like, I don't think he's going to come out and put up Terry McLaurin numbers. But in a couple of years, considering his physical talent and I think the level of polish that he has coming out of Baylor, like, he's going to be really, really, really damn good. So I think maybe just considering everything going on right now, this isn't going to pick that's going to, this isn't a pick that's going to pay off in 2020, but I think it's definitely going to pay off in 2021 and 2022, which, considering the trajectory of where the Jets are going, I think is kind of what they're shooting for. Maybe they're not building for a playoff run this year, but they're, they're definitely building for one in the year after. Yeah, is this the part where we can whisper out loud about Sam Darnold getting a pass that he really shouldn't have? <laughs> Are you talking for his third year? <laughs> uh, Sam Darnold just gets a lot of credit um, and not near as much scrutiny as some folks that he is very statistically significantly near, <laughs> right? His performance does not match the sort of level of pass that he gets in general um from a national standpoint in the media he is not that good right again he's got potential and he hasn't been surrounded by a ton of talent and yes those are legitimate arguments but um there might be the argument that denzel mims's you know development is going to be hindered a little bit by the fact that the guy throwing him the ball is not uh certainly not a top third passer and if you look at a lot of statistics not even a middle third passer Right? He's a bottom third passer, and you can say that's due to his surroundings or his coaching, and I wouldn't necessarily argue with you, but Darnold, Darnold gets a pretty big pass. Well, let's uh, let's lose some fans real quick and, and have you throw your hat into the Josh Allen versus Sam Darnold debate. Who's the oh. one you want? Gosh, uh, Let, let's let's of, let's get some Jets fans to turn off the podcast. Yeah, no, it's really that's a great question. We could do an entire podcast on that, and maybe we should. Um, I want to say let's not go too far into the weeds there, but you know, based on last year, which is the best you can do, um, I might say Allen, and there is no way I would have said that pre-draft for Allen. I was not a big Josh Allen supporter. I'm on record as saying so. I also have my mea culpa to Josh on record saying he has progressed more and more quickly than I thought he would or could. Um, but honestly, with what they did last year, I don't think it's that close. I think you take Allen over Darnold. I am very curious to see what happens this year. Now that I think Darnold has a little bit more support behind him. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would consider myself a Darnold apologist, um, because of my pre-draft grade on him. Maybe I'm making a mistake. 
Maybe I'm making a mistake by sticking with it. I'm one of the people that gives him a pass because of just how awful the roster was. And so I'm waiting one more year and just I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping to see what I thought I was going to see um because there are certainly quarterbacks that have made do with less and played better. Um I certainly remember like I did a film room episode on that game uh, uh, that disastrous game against the Patriots last year with all the turnovers and everything like that. And I, I kind of dove into the quote unquote seeing ghost thing and, and what the Patriots were doing to them. And it was stuff that honestly, a lot of young quarterbacks would struggle with, but there's a lot of young quarterbacks that don't struggle with it. Like Deshaun Watson and Pat Mahomes and, or, you know, Mahomes, he'll, he'll have his moments against stuff like that, but he's, he's a hell of a lot better at better against all those rotations and zero blitzes and stuff than Darnold was. So I, I'm holding out hope that I can see what I thought I was going to see. And now that he has Mims, now that he has Becton, maybe we'll see it. But, I mean, this is like the last year, you know, or it, it, this is it. <laughs> you sound like a desperate man, Brett. <laughs> but let's kind of keep it rolling because uh, I, I do want to talk about a, a phenomenal pick that the Jets made in the third round. Again, this guy only fell. I want to stress this. He only fell because of this virus and teams not being able to bring him in to examine his, I think it was a groin injury, if I remember correctly. And the fact that he couldn't get medical rechecks after the combine really tanked him. We saw a lot of guys go later than they should have because of the lack of medical rechecks. He was one of them. He was my top graded safety in this class, overall safety. In terms of pure free safeties, Grant Delbert, I had rated higher. But Ashton Davis in the third round at pick 68 was just downright thievery. Um, and I think you've made a good point that whether it's safety or corner, doesn't matter. He's going to see the field. Yeah. And I think actually the jets would be smart to do a little bit of positionless defense with him and even just put him on a man that they care about because look, the jets have a good safety tandem already and davis is a very quality player probably better i would say than most folks they're going to pull out in the nickel role and prior to the draft we did our 10 defensive gems episode and i said why wouldn't you play ashton davis at corner he has cornerback skills uh his coverage in man down the field his speed his size his smarts his recognition we talked about that with dane jackson ashton davis is another guy that is a noted film hound understands pre-snap what's happening you see that on the field at cal he's moving guys around no no get over there get over there it's gonna go this way right he gets all that stuff so i if i was the jets i absolutely would right i'd take their two existing safeties uh and i would line up davis in the slot and say just take this guy out of the play right i think that's a probably easier starting role than again safety which is you know a very heady position in the nfl and there's lots to learn i don't think it's above his head at all but a very physically skilled player good size um great reads very very fast and fluid one of the best man coverage safeties deep especially in this draft um again round three uh, you can call it a value. You can call it theft. Uh, both are probably accurate. Um, the idea of him pairing with Jamal Adams long-term, um, you know, that could be a scary safety tandem. Again, their current safety tandem already good. This just adds to the sort of more prevalent, you can call it dime and call it heavy nickel, whatever three safety rotation. Nick Saban's made famous at Alabama 
the Jets can run that all day long and have three very quality defenders on the field at the same time. Yeah, whether it's Jamal, whether it's Davis, whether it's May, I literally don't think it matters. They're going to have good safeties, and they have injury insurance in case somebody goes down. So I, I phenomenal pick. That was just pure value. Somebody who where it's eventually they're looking at each other in the war room or or their Zoom call or whatever they had, and yeah. they're looking around. They're like, guys, like, okay, let's let's Come stop on. screwing around here. <laughs> like, just just take yeah. him. Like, yep. Um, I I think they're was it 11 picks later 68 79 i'm not a math major but i think that's 11 picks uh jabari zuniga to me screamed like one of those picks where it's like look we have nobody else we we have literally nobody else let's take somebody that we know can start and be solid not spectacular but at least an upgrade to what we have i think that He'll probably be able to beat out Harvey Lang, even without an offseason. He'll probably be able to beat out him and then start across from Jenkins. And, and we, we were kind of going through it before the show. Like, going into the draft, like, here was their their outside linebacker group. Jordan Jenkins, Harvey Lange, uh Frankie Louvu, um, Terrell Basham, uh, Amon Gooden, Wyatt Ray. I mean, all these guys that just nobody knows <laughs> and i've i've only heard of three of them and that's me yeah so. <laughs> this is the this is the rough part when you're going through this stuff and you uh especially with teams that maybe you don't watch as much or or pay attention to look the league moves very fast there's a ton of player transactions every week i don't i don't think a lot of casual fans realize how many player transactions they are with every team every week, whether it's elevations from the practice squad or signing or releasing or whatever else. Let's just talk about the shift, complete shift in the Jets defensive line for a second. Cause a lot of casual fans that are not Jets fans think, Oh, the Jets defensive line, like it's stacked. It's loaded, right? 2016, not that long ago, the Jets defensive line, Leonard Williams, Mo Wilkerson, Sheldon Richardson, Steve McClendon, and Jarvis Jenkins. That's the 2016 lineup. That's like straight fire, right? That is strength of the team, most likely in those years. 2020, I'll spot you Henry Anderson. A lot of people couldn't name him, but I actually liked him in the draft, so I, I followed Mr. Anderson. And he played well for the Jets, got himself a contract extension. So Henry Anderson, I'll give you. And then, look, Quinnen Williams was a top pick. I'll give you those two. And if you're not a Jets fan and you can name two more after that, I'm really impressed. <laughs> like, really impressed because they come from places like Connecticut, Stephen F. Austin, Troy, Fort Hayes State. Like, these are not big name guys. Not saying they're not decent players, solid rotational players, whatever else. But a guy like Jabari Zuniga that we saw, I actually liked him better than the guy your team got right than his cohort at florida grenard yeah right? a lot of people were high on grenard i actually liked zuniga's game more i thought he was more stable uh more solid held the edge better he's bigger um and honestly i i thought his pass rush showed more potential did he get home as much as grenard no grenard made more flashier plays more flashy plays than zuniga did but i like zuniga as a very like you said solid player and if you look at who he's trying to displace you know, we always talk about path to playing time, right? His path to playing time on the current Jets defensive line, not the Jets defensive line that everybody thinks is there, is really good. 
Like I the can path see a beating... is a five lane highway. Yeah. I mean, you can just walk down the middle. Yeah, He's it's gonna an start. open door as much as there <laughs> ever is for a rookie coming into the NFL. So um, I like the Zaniga pick. I know a lot of Jess fans might have thought, oh, it's a little early. And there's, again, the kind of other guy syndrome. Oh, this guy was still on the board. This guy was still on the board. Um, I don't think it's a bad pick at all. I think he could be a really solid contributor. Again, solid. Is he going to come in and set rookie sack records? He's not. Is he going to come in, do his role, and probably earn some decent playing time as a rookie, as a rotational guy on that line? I bet he is. He's a very solid football player. The the one thing, or I should say the one guy who got picked after him in a similar role that I'm kind of like, okay, maybe. <laughs> maybe I know where you're going. <laughs> is Terrell Lewis. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the one where I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe there was a medical flag. I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, that was but, the knock on Lewis coming in is that he wasn't healthy. And again, you mentioned it in this particular climate, medical rechecks kind of tough. If they had any question after the combine, uh, the recheck was pretty limited because this whole COVID situation came on. And, you know, if you had any concerns about that, like, is he more talented? I think he is more talented than Zuniga if you just go straight up and say they're both healthy. But again, teams are going to go with a sure thing. Douglas, uh, right down the middle of the fairway with this one, right? Yeah, so I, I it makes sense from that standpoint. Um, their other, well, not other, I forgot Zuniga was a third round pick. But when, you, when they go into the fourth round, they had three fourth rounders. And they started off with Michael P. Ryan and James Morgan, who I don't anticipate would ever be starters for this team unless something really bad happened, uh, particularly to Le'Veon Bell and Sam Darnold. As as big of, I don't want to say you have a problem with Sam Darnold, as um, not confident in Darnold as you are, I would still probably start him over James Morgan 10 times out of 10. Wouldn't you agree? I absolutely, I would agree. I like Morgan. Uh, I was a, you know, a Morgan sort of supporter in terms of, again, the proper role, which is developmental quarterback. Like there's something there. Let's see if we can work with it. It is not to come in as a starter. I I never throughout the pre-draft process said, oh, James Morgan's going to be a, you know, starter and a quality starter in the NFL. Who knows, right? You're getting picks down. And his production in college was not great. He has great physical skills, but we've seen lots of guys, especially at the quarterback position with great physical skills never translated it into production for one reason or another now i think he's got a chance is that a chance to be a sort of you know legitimate threat to sam darnold's starting career uh for jets fans i would hope not uh is what i would say um that would that would represent a major shift in the organizational thinking but lamichael p ryan again second straight pick out of florida for the jets or, or right after jabari zuniga and I, you know, he's got a really, again, his path is starting, right? Like Le'Veon Bell is the number one for sure, but he ran for under 800 yards last year. Like most people wouldn't say that. If you say, hey, how many, how many yards did Le'Veon Bell have for the Jets last year? They'd be like, I don't know, 900,000 something. No, he had 798, right? So he's the number one, but, uh, you know, I would hope he does better than that this year for sure. Um, Frank Gore has joined the team, the bionic Frank Gore, the, <laughs> the cyborg Frank Gore. He keeps on being solid. He's well into his thirties, but that has to stop at some point, right? Um, he can only be so special. And if that happens quickly, the next most productive running back still on the roster after Le'Veon Bell from last year for the Jets is Josh Adams. And he had a whopping 12 
yards last year. Yikes. So P Ryan could be number three really quickly, like immediately. And if Gore stumbles or starts to show his age, he could be number two behind Le'Veon Bell really quickly. Again, not a guy that's going to start, but a good value pick in the fourth for a very solid running back who has a, I would say, a versatile skill set. I really liked him as a fourth round pick because he's one of those uh, jack of all trades, master of none type backs Mm -hmm. where I think if you have a special starting running back like Le'Veon Bell, uh, again, I'm kind of a Le'Veon Bell apologist. I'll, I attribute a lot of the the problems last year to their god-awful offensive line. But at the same time, he's 28. Um, we're kind of on the backside of a running back's prime. He's probably only got two quote-unquote prime years left. He has a lot of tread on the tires, including his time at Michigan State. I recognize he's not going to last forever. But when you have an alpha kind of talent, like Le'Veon Bell has shown himself to be in the past... You want a guy like LaMichael P. Ryan that's a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none, that can just take hits off of him, kind of preserve Le'Veon for as long as you possibly can while he's still in that uh, pre-30 years, uh, years old window. Take as many hits as you can, and then if it's a big down, if it's a third and seven, like if it's a huge short yardage opportunity, when you really need a fresh Le'Veon Bell to be at his best, that's when you bring him in. So, you know, do I expect to ever see Le'Veon getting 25-plus touches in a game ever again? Maybe once or twice, hopefully, in a season at most. But I think mostly it's going to be in the 15 to 20 total touches range, like including receptions. And then probably P. Ryan taking the majority of the work on top of that to keep him fresh. And then Frank Gore coming in for like a few touches a game, but mostly I think you know, Frank's going to be there for, for like leadership, veteran presence, that kind of stuff that the coaches love. Don't so, tell him that. <laughs> I mean, I, I would never tell that to his face, <laughs> but, but that's probably why he has a job right now is just because of his legendary work ethic and leadership and all that kind of stuff. And the, he was, the knowledge he was productive for the bills last year. I mean, same division. He understands how to do this. Like, and we keep saying, we've been saying for five years, like, Oh, Frank Gore is going to drop off the early the early career in injuries the tread you know just the pure number of touches in that guy's career it's staggering but he we're, we're really not on productive. tread anymore we're on the rims oh and wearing them down getting towards the lug nuts you would think <laughs> but still he had almost as many yards in buffalo last year as Le'Veon bell had for the jets which probably speaks to the Bills' offensive line. I, 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 sure, it's not that much better than the Jets, but it's just Frank Gore is amazing. That's where we're going with that. Um, yeah, I mean, first ballot Hall of Famer to me, but at the yeah. same time, he's 30 what now? We keep saying it. We keep saying it, but he keeps putting it <laughs> I, up. But. I just think you bring in a guy like P. Ryan, soak up all the punishment for these other older backs, and let the older backs make plays when they need to. Yeah, and December, I think that's a sure. good strategy. Yeah. Um, what did you think about their other fourth round pick, Cam Clark from Charlotte? I think uh, he's got Charlotte? potential. He's, uh, you know, a lot of people have him penciled in at guard. He played tackle at Charlotte. He definitely shows physical potential. And I would say a little bit more technique than some guys you mentioned earlier. Um, 
who are, you know, physically gifted tackles, but went very late for a reason because they just don't have it figured out yet. Cam Clark is closer and he'll probably kick inside to guard. I think he could be one of those guys um, that you're going to get in the later rounds uh, that especially could play on the interior offensive line for a while. They might give him a shot at tackle. I don't know if they will. I bet they're going to push him inside to guard and I'm not opposed to that. I, I think he's going to be a productive player, um, much like the guys we talked about for the Patriots who got drafted in the later rounds who are going to be serviceable starters. I could see him sliding right into that role. I thought it was a good value pick in the fourth. He wouldn't have lasted much longer um, because he was one of those solidly middle-tier linemen um, that, again, we talked about that being on our live stream, the sweet spot, third, fourth, especially fourth round for guards, and he went in the fourth. Again, not surprising. Yeah, and and I mean it's not like there's a <laughs> a lack of availability in terms of jobs there on the Jets offensive line. I mean, I think it's kind of looking at the the depth chart right now. Let me pull it up. So, it is Mikai Becton, Alex Lewis, which is probably like the two most entrenched starters, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um Chuma Adoga I think had his moments, but he's still highly inconsistent. I I I think jury's still out on him. Like he's still young. He was a a rookie last year and he has some talent. So it's possible he evolves into a good starter, but it it was, it was very inconsistent. I'll just say that Uh, Brian winters. He's been there forever, but I think Clark can push him for a starting job at right guard. And then Connor McGovern at center is probably still going to be a center for them, uh, starting center for them. But I think Clark, I think can push either winners or McGovern uh, to be a starter at either one of those spots. Or, I mean, maybe they want to try him at right tackle first and then kick him inside if, if they wanted to push a doga. Either way, everything from McGovern on over, I think is up for grabs. And you have a guy like Cam Clark with positional flexibility. Uh, I think you just, you try to get him on the field, whatever way you can. And just wherever, wherever he sticks, he sticks. Yeah, his path to playing time um, looks pretty good as well. And if that seems to be a theme with this draft, right, is even the guys, with the exception of Morgan, uh, later on down, Zaniga, P. Ryan, and Cam Clark, you know, they're not they're not here to be starters, but they could be starters pretty quickly. Um, and that wouldn't that'd be a great value proposition for the Jets. Um, speaking of value propositions, this is the one. Yep. Round five. Bryce Hall, cornerback from Virginia. Now, Bryce Hall, in my mind, is a borderline first-round talent. Again, had an injury, but was well-heeled. It wasn't he had his injury early in the season. Um, but again, current COVID crisis, uh, lack of medical rechecks. Do not let this. This is my personal. I, I implore everybody listening to this. Do not let the fact that Bryce Hall went in the fifth round make you ever ever believe that Bryce Hall was a fifth round talent nope like Bryce Hall is a first round bottom of the first round easily solidly top of the second starting outside corner in the NFL period great size great instincts physical mashes routes um not slow right just has everything you're looking for in a starting boundary corner and slides to the fifth and the jets uh look very very sharp for saying you know uh we're not going to argue about this one kind of like mims kind of like davis you know what this jets draft starting to remind me of and we've already talked about this team in one of our previous previews Hmm. the teams that wait 
right? <laughs> yes. The teams the Ravens, that don't go the, hunting, you know. right? And it's not surprising given Joe Douglas's pedigree, right? That he learned how to wait. And they waited in this draft. They waited at 11 and Mackay Becton was there. They come to pick 59 and Denzel Mims is still there. They come to 68. Ashton Davis is still there, right? Zaniga is probably the first one where you go, okay, you took him at or slightly above his his typical projected value. But the first three, they just waited. And in round five, they look around, is this right? Right? Is this thing on? Is Bryce Hall still on the board? Uh, yeah, pick Bryce Hall in the fifth freaking round. They just waited. And because of it, they had a very successful draft. So... This may sound sacrilegious to you, but I agree. You know, we're talking late first round, high second round talent, big corner with feet that can move. I mean, how many, you know, 6'1", 6'2", kind of size corners do you see that can play off coverage and do it well or play press and also have ball skills and play the run? Um, you know, a little bit and, older. And, and, pro- and, and, and. You know, and, 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 and. Um, but in terms of, my comp for him, again, might sound sacrilegious, but you know who else was a similar size, similar skill set, and was picked at 35th overall, top of the second round? Peanut. Mm. I'm, yeah, it's, I, it's damn not, close. No, I don't find that sacrilegious at all. I found myself, um, especially his ability to smother a receiver physically, I mean, physically smother them down the outside boundary. I found myself saying that that was Tillman-esque, right? That was Tillman versus Megatron. That was, you know, yep. very physical. Again, Tillman, not the fastest guy, but concentrated very hard on technique, was extremely notably physical. And no, I don't think that's sacrilegious at all. Is he Peanut Tillman? No. I think in some ways, in pure pass coverage, he might, now this is going to be sacrilegious to my fellow Bears fans, he might even be, I think he is ahead of where Tillman was coming out, right? He is more advanced as a pure pass defender than Tillman was coming out. I'm not saying the, you know, the ring of honor Tillman as he retired as a Bear, because he continued to develop throughout his career. One of my favorite things about Charles Tillman is that he, you know, continued to get better he continued to work hard he never was a player that rested on his laurels um but coming out if you ask me about pass coverage skills in tillman or hall like hall clearly more refined in a wider variety of sets and techniques um so again if he can find that thing that made tillman special which was that he never sort of quit learning developing finding new ways to win if he can do that and he's starting from a place that's higher you know as long as he can stay healthy man that is i think everybody's going to look back on that pick very quickly and be like oh why did we wait right it's going to be eddie jackson all over again he gets my eddie jackson memorial award for this this year's draft (laughs) and i actually called that like three months before the draft in a tweet i will pull it up for anybody that wants receipts I said, mark it down right now. Bryce Hall is going to be the guy that, and we didn't have any idea that COVID was coming, but he's going to be the guy that loses a little bit of visibility in the pre-draft process because he's not fully healed yet. That's going to drop him down. He's not going to probably run at the combine. That's going to drop him down a little bit more. And I said, he's going to get picked in like the late second or early third. And everybody's going to be like, he was a great value. He gets picked in the fifth. That's ridiculous. Right? There is no way that a healthy Bryce Hall comes out 
and quote unquote justifies a fifth round grade. Like that guy, if he's healthy, everybody's going to be like, what in the world was he doing in the fifth? And I'm just going to agree. I think overall tremendous class. You got potentially, if I count correctly, six starters in one draft class, like not even future starters, but like starters now in Becton, Mims, potentially Davis, depending on if he's a starting nickel for them, which I count as a starter. Uh, Zuniga, I think, is going to start. Hall, I think, is eventually going to start, assuming he comes back healthy. And then uh, you can maybe count Braden Mann as a starting punter, if, if you know, depending on technicality. But, you know, you're getting at least five, probably six starters out of one draft class. Yeah, uh, I, I think, think the swing are votes are probably Zuniga and Cam Clark. Like, either of those guys could start. I'm with you on Davis. Is even if he's not quote-unquote starting, he's, he's a starting caliber player, even in a somewhat loaded, you know, defensive backfield. Uh, Becton and Mims, I think, are penciled sort of from day one. So Davis, yeah, that's three. Zuniga and Clark, kind of the swing votes, could stay at three, could be five. And then Bryce Hall, if he's healthy, yeah, he's he's on that field. He For sure. You can't keep him off the field. But, um, yeah, excellent, excellent class by them. Um, and I, I don't know if I would say that they're the second best class in the division down in Miami. I think the Jets are the, the best no matter what. But I think you could argue that they're the second best class in the division solely on their first pick, which was Tua Tagalavoa or Tungalavoa, uh, quarterback out of Alabama. I mean, that alone, if Tua hits, like they had a great draft, period. But everybody that they got on top of him, Austin Jackson with their second first round pick, Noah Igbenogany with their third first round pick. Robert Hunt in the second, Raquan Davis in the second, Brandon Jones in the third, two picks after Ashton Davis, I should say. I, I, I guarantee you Ashton Davis would be a Dolphin if he didn't go two picks before that. Uh, Solomon Kinley in round four, Jason Strobridge, Curtis Weaver both in round five, Blake Ferguson round six, Malcolm Perry round seven. Like even if only Tua hits out of all those guys, which I think more than just Tua is going to hit, it's a great draft. But if even half of the guys after Tua also hit, it's a legendary draft. Yeah, it's a franchise-changing selection, and it always is. We've talked about this with drafting quarterbacks up high for anybody. If Tua succeeds, it's a great draft. If Tua fails, it's it's not a great draft, and I don't care who else hits, and I think a lot of these other guys will hit. But the parallels of Tua joining the Dolphins 14 years after Drew Brees had a chance to, right? Famously, Brees could have gone to the Dolphins or the Saints. He ended up with the Saints. Culpepper goes to the Dolphins. And the reason that's so interesting is because a lot of people throughout the pre-draft process have compared Tua to Drew Brees. And here he is, you know, uh, hopefully a franchise-changing pick, joining the same team 14 years later and seeing if he can do the same thing to resurrect the Dolphins from their current state of mediocrity or worse that Drew Brees did for the Saints and take them to heights where, you know, he becomes the all-time NFL passing leader. He takes them to a Super Bowl, um, just sort of revitalizes New Orleans in a lot of ways. Um, You know, Miami doesn't need the revitalization as a city, but Tua could really help their football prospects in a very similar way. And, And just the sort of synergy between those two players who are compared to each other um joining what is now the same franchise uh a long time later is just going to be fascinating to watch and i don't think that's an adjective you've been able to honestly apply to the dolphins for some time yeah uh i'm trying to remember the last time 
that I sat down on a Sunday afternoon and was excited to watch a Dolphins game. Yeah, you're game. like, oh, no, 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 go to the Dolphins game. Like, that's that's going to be a thing, I think, moving forward. And this really feels like the whole thing has gotten to the point where uh, this new regime, Chris Greer and Brian Flores, again, in a synergy, have made enough moves to, to clear out the old, bring in their guys, get folks that fit their system. And now Tua is just really kind of the capper, right? He's the tip of that iceberg. It's been building now for a while since they took over. And this really feels like the turning point in a lot of ways. And then the guys below him, I don't want to, I don't want to sort of scrub over their selections as well. Austin Jackson, look, they need a lot of help. It's a young tackle out of USC. Had some injury problems, but showed some great flashes, some tremendously athletic flashes before that. If he comes back healthy and is able to continue to grow, quite frankly, because he's not even done growing yet, he's that young, um, you know, he could be a fixture on that de- on the offensive line for the Dolphins. And they need that, right? They are, they are I don't want to say bereft of talent, but they could certainly use a talent influx on that line. Um, and then Igbenogany was a guy that was a favorite of yours pre-draft. Uh, again, a young athletic player, young in the position in that he was in his first year at cornerback. He played it in the SEC and he played really well. He's a wide receiver convert. If he continues to develop and meshes with their defensive backfield system and coaching, like uh, sky's the limit for that guy physically. So, you know, your top three picks all in round one, um, which, you know, we knew going in that the Dolphins had that kind of draft capital. They come away with three guys that could really affect some very serious, high profile, high dollar positions on that team for years to come. Yeah, I, I've got a full film room episode on Tua coming out early next week, so I'll, I'll kind of um, I'll let that do a lot of the talking in terms of my thoughts on him. And ironically enough, I compare him to Drew Brees in weird. that episode. Weird, so weird. weird. Nobody does I that. Know. Nobody else does that. I'm super original, I know. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think as long as he stays healthy, he's a franchise-changing quarterback. Is Does he have the same skill set of Joe Burrow? Not really. Uh, does he have the talent of like a Pat Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, Carson Wentz? No, but in terms of what he does really well, get the ball out quick, throw it in rhythm, make good decisions, be mobile within the pocket, maybe not so much out of the pocket, but in terms of avoiding pressure in the pocket, he's very good at that. Um, I I think he is a high level starter uh, that you can win a, a lot, and I mean a lot of games with. And if you kind of strike while the iron's hot, while his contract is still cheap, you surround him with a lot of talent, which they've honestly already started to do. Just look at their secondary alone. Then, yeah, you could, within a few years, I think this Dolphins team's going to be making noise deep into the playoffs if they play their cards right. So that alone, I think, makes this a good draft. Uh, the Austin Jackson pick, a little early in terms of my grade on him, but at the same time, they were staring down the barrel of Julian Davenport being their left tackle again, and that's a fate that I would not wish on any quarterback, including one that I love as much as Ryan Fitzpatrick. He does not deserve that kind of beating. So while Austin Jackson is not ready, uh, he's better than Julian Davenport. Yeah, there's a tackle run. There's a tackle run and they were responding and it happens every year. It happened to happen to the Dolphins. They got pinched with need. And when you get pinched with need and you are staring at that very um, 
non-friendly reality is what we'll call Julian Davenport being your starting left tackle. Uh, you know, you you reach. You, you get the, the best guy on the board before he goes because you look at everybody after him and go, Ugh, if we don't get this guy, our chances of getting a guy that can be a serviceable starter in the near term um, are not good. So we're going to, quote unquote, overpay. We're going to go a little bit earlier um, than we would like based on grade, but knowing that we can't necessarily guarantee we're going to get another guy before our next pick, uh, we have to do this. And that's what they did. I don't think anybody thinks any differently about that. Um, but they get a guy at least that's got really good potential and showed some tremendous flashes. Then in down in round two, they go back to the offensive line. They get Robert Hunt. Uh, and I want to talk about their other round two pick, which is a defensive lineman. So they play on different sides of the ball, but I think of them very similarly. Both Hunt uh, and Raquan Davis, the defensive tackle from Alabama, are they're ass kickers, physical man. dudes. They <laughs> like to beat people up when you watch their tape. Raquan Davis is a controlling defensive tackle. Is he super mobile? Is he fast like Neville Gallimore? Is he, you know, super rangy and, and has a wide variety of hand fighting technique? No, he doesn't. He is a mountain of a dude and he controls people in the middle and they do not go by. You shall not pass, right? That's it. And Hunt is a guy that likes to beat people up physically, um, guard out of Louisiana Lafayette very very physical player that was his calling card they're going to slide him inside to guard so you know guards and defensive tackles these two guys are going to go against each other in practice i kind of want the richter scale reading from that but i think of them very similarly and again um you add hunt to jackson and the line starts to look better in front of tua you add raekwon davis and some of the other guys we'll talk about later um Look, Miami's defensive line is ridiculous. They've added Christian Wilkins, who's 6'4", 315, Raekwon Davis, 6'7", 313, and Benito Jones, uh, this year as an undrafted free agent in the last two years. Like, that middle of the D-line. They have four other guys over 310. The, it's a lot of beef. The middle of that line are posts, man. They are not going anywhere. You're going to have to run somewhere else. Uh, so again, it's just sort of what is a franchise doing? What are they building? And, and Flores wants, you know, some big dudes in the middle that you're not going to move so he can worry about controlling the edges. And they're on their way to doing that, uh, with those two players for sure. The next guy I want to toot my own horn a little bit about, and that's Brandon Jones, the safety out of Texas. They picked him in round three and I might've been the only person in the country that wasn't surprised by that. Brandon Jones was rated consistently, if you looked at pre-draft rankings, fifth or sixth round. And after doing my safety work upon him, I have no idea why, like no earthly idea what Brandon Jones didn't have or couldn't do compared to a bunch of other safeties in this class. I told you about it. I told anybody that would listen pre-draft that I thought he was wildly underrated in the safety class. And I was really sort of gratified when Chris Greer sort of basically said the same thing and picked him in round three. If you have a question about Brandon Jones's ability, go back and watch his game against LSU and the Joe Burrow Brady offense, right? One of the most prolific offenses in the history of college football and watch what he did in that game, both going forwards and going backwards. What he was was able to do in best game pass coverage. Like he, showed everything he is large physical fast smart studies extremely hard um famously did a thing on twitter where he put together uh prior to the combine a 
three-ring binder on every team, their preferred alignments, personnel, what they ran most often, the percentage breakdowns. Like, this guy has it dialed, and I was extremely happy to see all that sort of, all those factors rolled into one sort of come to fruition with a third-round pick for Brandon Jones. I think he's going to contribute for them really, really quickly and be a solid player for them for a long time. My my only question, A, is not that he's a good player. He's a tremendous player. Um, the only reason why I say Ashton Davis would have gone ahead of him, A, is because Ashton Davis might on my highest-ranked safety. But also, Cal's DB coach, who coached Ashton last year and loves him, is now the Dolphins' DB coach. So bum, I think if, yeah, if Ashton was on the board two picks later, he would have been the pick. But Brandon Jones is not a consolation prize. He's... He's just a really damn good player where they're like, okay, well, uh, you know, our first safety is gone, but our third safety is there, so let's take him anyway because yeah, they're and, both really damn good players. And we just lost um, a safety. We need to replace those snaps, and this guy can come in and do it fairly quickly. Again, safety, a notoriously difficult position to pick up in the college to pro transition. I think Brandon Jones has as good a shot based on the well-roundedness of his game to do that as as anybody in this draft. And he can play high, he can play in the box, he can play a little bit of dime linebacker for you, he can play a little bit of nickel for you, like he's a very versatile guy. Is he elite at any one thing? No, but the versatility is what Flores loves about him, is that he can move him around like they wanted to move Minka around, but Brandon Jones is actually willing to do that. Uh, You know, Minka famously said that he didn't want to have to kind of play five different positions and fluctuate his weight all over the place depending on the matchup for that week. Whereas Brandon Jones, I don't think they're really going to ask him to fluctuate weight. I I, I wouldn't really know if I were them. He's very effective at the weight he plays at. Nice balance yeah. between power and speed. But I do think that he's more willing to kind of be that all over the place kind of uh, defensive weapon for them playing free safety, playing strong safety, playing nickel, playing dime linebacker, whatever they want him to do, he'll do. And when you combine that with Xavier Howard, with Byron Jones, with no Igbenogany, God, I'm always going to screw that name up, you know, three extremely talented press corners and Igbenogany in particular is going to be their nickel, but he's a very physical nickel that plays the run extremely well which if you're a team like Miami that runs a lot of corner force looks like you need a nickel that can tackle out in space and allow the front seven to just kind of attack in the middle and make splash plays in the backfield Um, but he also plays press really really well from the slot so it's going to be tough for uh, a lot of these kind of bigger slot receivers around the league to get much done against him because he beats people up so again you look at all three of these physical press man corners with a versatile safety like Brandon Jones. Um, you know, Eric Rowe, they have it strong safety. Bobby McCain, they have it free safety. I think Jones can beat either one of them out for one of those roles. Uh, like, this is a very, very, very talented sen- uh, secondary to go with just waves upon waves upon waves uh, in the front seven with Jones and Davis and Strobridge and Lawson and Godshaw and Wilkins and uh, I guess you can throw Vince Beagle in there too. Yep. Um, you know, Kyle Van Noy is there. Raekwon McMillan. Rake, I mean, there's there's a million of them. Like the, the front seven's like 20 guys deep. It's crazy. And so I, I look at this defense and I'm finally starting to see, maybe this sounds weird to say, but I'm starting to see the Patriots. 
which I think is what they've been trying for all along. Yeah, when you look at the guys they added this offseason, and again, let's just talk about folks they can throw in waves against opposing offenses. Maybe none of these guys have, you know, few of these guys besides Van Noy have lived up to their potential, but Shaq Lawson, Emmanuel Ogba, Vince Beagle, Raekwon McMillan, Kyle Van Noy. You add in Jason Strobridge, who's a very versatile guy we ended up seeing at the Senior Bowl, you know, and people were like, well, is he a DE or an edge? Well, he was playing edge at the Senior Bowl, but he played DE at North Carolina. Again, there's that versatility. Curtis Weaver, a lot of people looked at his shape at Boise State and said, ah, he's a little too short in squat, but he had production. So you just throw these guys in there and they almost fit perfectly, right? It's like all the same guy. You're looking at somebody that you can just toss in there for five plays and say, go do your thing. And then, you know, you rotate the guy next to him two plays later and say, go do five plays and do your thing. And you just keep doing that on both sides and stacking them and, and moving them around, asking them to go forward and backward, depending on their strength. And look, Northern teams in September, when it's still Oof. hot, going yeah. to Miami, forget <laughs> it. You've got eight or nine guys who you're just going to be able to sort of throw against the offensive line like a wall and waves, and they're going to get through. And then you've got those stalwarts we talked about inside, plugging everything up and just beating people. All of a sudden, oh, that sounds like a Patriots defense, right? Three big, solid guys in the middle who don't give up and are real physical. And then this just complete variety of sort of edge players, uh, hybrid outside strong backers, whatever you want to call them. It doesn't really matter. And yep, the Dolphins are starting to look a lot like that. Yeah. So, I mean, if you get that kind of defense, that kind of versatile defense with a million different pieces that uh, have well-defined roles, but also a little bit of versatility to them uh, to go with a potential franchise quarterback, a developmental left tackle that's probably going to start just out of necessity. Not that that's a bad thing. Um, I think an ass kicker of a guard in Robert Hunt. Like this is a this is a potential franchise changing class in more ways than one. And again, even if they just have a fifty percent hit rate, as long as that quarterback is part of the fifty percent. The Miami Dolphins are set for a very, very long time. So I, I really can't wait to see what happens there. In terms of who I think is more set up for success in 2020, a challenge for the division now that Brady's gone, again, it's a wide open AFC East. I would probably put the Bills on the inside track, but they're not that far ahead of everybody else. Yeah, it's it's straight up competition, and like we said at the top of the show, it's going to be so much fun to watch the individual matchups, the team matchups, uh, the strength unit against strength unit when these teams start to really build their identity and, and really go at it for the division title in a way that probably hasn't been this wide open in a long time. And yeah, I'd lean towards the Bills being farther along. They gave the Patriots a couple of really good games last year. Now they've improved their talent. Arguably that you could say the Patriots have suffered some quite notable losses. Um, Does that mean they're going to stumble? Probably not with Bill Belichick, but those games are going to be hard fought and they might go in the Bills' favor. And if they do that, look, that's still the crown to the division. You know, it's the key to getting to that matchup. And uh, it's just going to be great to watch. But we're kicking an hour 40. We swore we weren't going to go to two hours. So we should probably wrap this up and get out of here and let these folks off the hook. 
Yeah, this is positively short by our standards, so uh, <laughs> you guys are welcome for that one. But uh, yeah, we are going to get out of here. Uh, so we just hit the AFC East. We are going to hit the NFC East. That'll be dropping in a couple days. Uh, me and EJ are going to record that right after this one, but we'll drop it a couple days later. we got to reload on our on our alcoholic beverages and then get going on that. So again, thank you guys for listening. We'll see you in a couple days with the NFC East. Eagles fans, buckle up for that one. I guarantee you're going to love and or hate it, depending on how much you love and or hate Jalen Hurts. So we'll see you back then for that. And uh, until then, later. Later.